You're listening to Discovering Multifamily, where we discuss all educational topics in commercial real estate with an emphasis on multifamily apartment investing via syndication. And now your hosts, former NFL fullback Brian Leonard and Anthony Scandariato. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another Discovering Multifamily podcast episode. This podcast episode is a little bit different. We are going to be playing a presentation from a webinar that we just hosted on Thursday, October 21st called Framework for Investing During Inflation. It was an economic forecast webinar discussing how this inflationary period could be different than other inflationary periods in our uh, history of the country. So really excited to share this with our audience here and hope you enjoy it. I actually started this way back when... um we were first hit with pandemic and I just started to understand what happens when uh, ec- economic engine stops and how do you sort of recover from it and, and has it happened before? So that was the, the genesis of my interest in this. And one thing led to another and I just kept um, digging deeper into it. Uh, one thing I wanna say is uh, before we go, just for the legal disclaimer, um, here, everything here is my views, my ideas, my opinions. Uh, nothing here contained or presented here should constitute as a recommendation, endorsement, or um, advice to buy or sell any securities. They are just my opinions, so please seek professional advice before making any investment decisions. Okay, and by the way, if you have any questions during this session, feel free to interrupt so we can make this interactive. Okay, so let's just start with understanding inflation from first principles. Um, When I think about inflation, I said, let's just break it down to what it actually is. And um, there there are two key elements to it. And they sound very basic, sound very fundamental, but um, there's a lot hidden in it. When we start mapping it to where we are today, you'll start to see it. So money supply goes up and its value goes down. So as we print more money, um, the value that that each dollar holds will go down because the supply is higher, right? Um, Economics 101. And the factors that contribute to it is uh, federal government budget deficits combined with central bank, bond purchasing, essentially money printing, and then banks creating more money by lending to households and businesses. The second element is the, the way inflation can happen is the money supply can stay constant, but what if there is a shortage of skilled labor? What if the dynamics of the labor market changes and um, the kind of labor and the skills that are required in the market are short-staffed, so the price, their price goes up, which results in increase in price of the product and services they offer, right? Two, um, the, the second one ties back to the first one, actually. When... Banks are lending um, to businesses and households, then all this extra money can go into increase in demand for goods and services. Now, what we have seen a little bit of this trend with the crypto um, in the last year, where a lot of people holding cryptos have seen this sudden increase in their wealth from, from cryptos. And then you go out and you see there's a shortage for Lamborghinis and Ferraris and so on, right? So. Um, so, so, so because um, 
because people have sort of more money, they have more to spend, and it can come from multiple directions. And the the only reason I gave the crypto example was um, uh, because it was um, very asymmetric and uncorrelated to rest of the market for wealth creation. Um, supply shortages, um, obviously, it's it's one of those things that are temporary and transitory. Where uh, just as we saw in the pandemic, there was everything stopped and then the demand picked back up very quickly, faster than most um, businesses thought it would pick up. And as a result, it ended up in uh, creating supply shortages, right? And which also creates an upward pressure on the on on the prices. So. So fundamentally, those are the, the the two key forces that play in, and and the factors that actually the levers that control it is interest rate, and interest rate and money supply goes hand in hand. Where as we understand, Fed can move the interest rate up, essentially decreasing the supply of the money in the in in the marketplace, so less money to go around, so control inflation. The second element is the labor market, which is. Um, Again, um, as as there as the unemployment numbers go down, as the the, the workforce go back and unemployment gets down, you can you can manage it. And actually, it's part of the equation between the interest rates and labor market, where um, you can drive the interest rates down, keep the interest rates low till the labor market returns to what's considered normal, which is around four percent unemployment. But the third one is really interesting. It's um, what I call inflation expectations. Inflation expectations is essentially the the public's expectation of inflation. If everyone believes that we're in inflation or we're going to go in hyperinflation and it's coming, then they start making decisions um, in in such order. And as a result, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where if we all say we're in inflationary times and we start acting that way, we start buying gold and commodities and and, and so on, all of a sudden it would sort of, it would become that, right? Self-fulfilling. And, and the other way the Fed tries to control it is by coming out and saying things like, hey, it's transitory. We know how to adjust it. It's dynamics. We have the right levers. Um, to manage the expectations because expectations can essentially have the same impact that an interest rate can have. Okay, uh, let me let me pause and see if there are any questions on the fundamentals before I double click on each of them with where we are today. Oh, I think we're all good here. I'll keep going. All right, now it gets interesting. Now we sort of we, we got the fundamentals down, right? So so let's map them to where we are today. Increased money supply, right? Um, there was a $3.4 trillion of COVID spending, right? I'm not I'm not sort of making a comment. I don't have an opinion on if it was a right thing or a wrong thing. But what that essentially has done is it has increased the money supply in a very major way. Uh, and, and when we look at the M2 money supply, it has increased by 29.7%. So it's almost 30% increase in the money supply just uh, during, uh, during the COVID in last year. Uh, which which is pretty insane. But when we look at the M1, the, which is the velocity of money, how the dollar is spent, it was actually reduced by 77.2%. So essentially what that means is all this extra money is not um, going out sort of 
for for day-to-day transactions, but actually going in investments. And and part of that is seen in the stock market where um, S&P and Dow are at all-time highs, right? The real estate prices are growing at double digits. So so, so that's, um, that's what's happening. They're going into into these assets um, and creating an asset bubble or asset inflation. And as we go further down in the presentation, what I'll do is I'll, I'll try to compare it to an asset bubble that we saw in, in the past and, and how it relates to that. Okay, the second thing is budget deficit, right? Um, as we recently saw, we hit the debt ceiling again and now we got sort of the short term, sort of till December 3rd, we have the some emergency relief here. But um, the point worth noting here is US in 2001, right, had a, um, was the last time we had surplus in our budget. Since then, it has continued to grow up. And even during our Great Recession of 2008, 2009, we were the deficits in the budget was around 1.5 trillion. Okay. I have done this dotted red line to show what COVID has done, right? So now we're at 2.7 trillion compared to 1.5 from Great Recession to surplus 20, um, 20 years ago, right? So, so as you can see, it's growing at a rate where I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, right, if we will ever be able to get that under control and what are some of the mechanisms the U.S. government will use to get that under control, right? And, and, and part of the picture is inflation in some ways is actually helping it because if you compare inflation with uh, the nominal GDP, um, as inflation happens, the nominal GDP goes up and so... The, the the deficits look less than what they actually are without inflation. Um, the third thing here is the role of the Fed, right? Uh, Fed's bond buying spree is going to result in about 8.5 trillion uh, on U.S. central bank's balance sheet uh, by uh, February of 2022, which is double in size from what was pre-COVID, Okay. Pre-COVID, the balance sheet was four trillion. Now it's going to be eight trillion, right? And then if you go further back, I don't know if you can see my mouse, but if you go 2008, 2010 timeframe, if you see we were between zero and two trillion, right? It was less than a trillion. And going from less than a trillion to eight trillion, uh, and just doubling from 2024 trillion to uh, Eight trillion is it's going to have consequences. It's it's huge. Um, so, and, and given how the Fed operates, um, it I, I worry that this can get out of control very quickly, right? Um, but I'm gonna what I want to do is I want to put the last three slides together and and show you sort of where where we're heading with this. Right, so going from four trillion to eight trillion on a balance sheet for Fed, going in a budget deficit for two point seven trillion to uh, from one point five to two point seven trillion, right? While we spent, while we just spent uh, three point four trillion dollars, 
in COVID relief, right? So, so a lot of money spent, a lot of money printed, Fed's balance sheets up, the deficits are sort of all time high. So that combination of three, the triangulation of three is pretty scary. And it's something we have not seen before, right? At, this, at the levels that we are at now. So that's what gets me concerned. Even though um, Jerome Powell keeps saying it's transitory, will go away, but it's, the, the, the numbers here seems really concerning. Again, um, sorry if I'm going in the wrong direction. <clears throat> okay, so, so let's look at the CPI. CPI is what the Fed looks at, right? They're showing C, uh, CPI at 5.2% and they still think they can manage and control it even though it's higher than what the expectation was. But here's sort of the year-to-date price increases. Gas prices have rose 42% year-to-date. Food prices have rose 12%. Used car prices rose 24%. And shelter prices, which is the rent, has grown to 3.2%, right? Now, um, as I think about it, right, one of, the, one, of the, one of the defenses you get from the other side is they say, oh, no, because there was a decline in prices during the pandemic, Hence, this is the, that's where the delta is coming from. But when I look at the numbers, I don't see that because the gas prices before pandemic were at $55, not $85. And right now they're at 85, right? I do not remember seeing a decrease in food prices during the pandemic. I actually saw an increase, right? Same thing with the used cars. So, so um, to me, um, when, when I think through this, it doesn't, to me, it's not the recovering from, hey, these numbers are getting back to normal after, post, uh, after the pandemic. To me, this is something bigger than that. And there is some structural issues that are underneath it. Okay. And then there's also something interesting happening in the labor market too, right? There is 10 million job openings. Unemployment rates at 4.8%, which is fairly good. And it's sort of at a point where the Fed should start tapering, but we haven't seen any indication there. Okay, there's 4.3 million or what I, if I did them, when I did the math, I saw 2.8% of entire workforce quit their jobs in August. And um, so, so what we have is even with the people quitting their jobs, right? With 10 million job openings, the job openings outnumber the job seekers. And, and what I'm, what my, um, again, opinion and view here is based on what I'm seeing is I think there is something that's wrong here structurally, which is, which is being reflected in these numbers where a 2.8% of your workforce can quit in a, in a month. And, and the reason why I believe there, there could be multiple reasons why people are quitting, right? But the reason I believe the people are more confident quitting their jobs is because they know that there are a lot of open jobs so they can go and get something that culturally fits and aligns with what they're looking for, with their purpose, and also demand higher salaries. And at the same time, because there are 10 million job openings and most of these jobs are very requires a different set of skills and the skills that are needed for those jobs have evolved, um, they're, they're willing to pay higher amount too. So there is this, um, the, the, I think what we're gonna see is we're gonna see um, the wages go up 
significantly more than what's anticipated and expected by Fed. And there's still going to be a struggle to fill those job openings because I believe uh, from what I've seen from scanning the job openings is that there is a scale mismatch between the jobs that are that are open and the and the skills people have right there is there's this trend towards data and technology and ai and robotic process automation and all of those things are happening uh while we as a country haven't done a great job keeping up with 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 the skill set and keeping keeping the workforce up to date there so so there's that structural issue which i think is pretty significant and it and and one of the reasons why and there was recently a comment made by Kathy Wood um she said that she doesn't really see inflation she thinks it's in next few years we're going to be in deflationary environment giving all of the innovation the technology is going to have but i'm of the opinion that yes technology inventiveness is going to be there but it's not going to be at the rate at which she's expecting or at which it's going to have an impact on inflation or will be deflationary because where the most of the innovation is coming from and as obvious from her portfolio the skill sets that are needed to to fill those jobs are very highly specialized and they're going to be it's going to be a struggle to to get the get the right people there hence um the productivity that she thinks is going to come out of sort of technology inventiveness and innovation probably not going to be um that great right because because there's this structural issues with the labor market right if the labor market's not there the prices are going to be high and then it would be hard to find talent to actually create that productivity with technology so um that's that's the labor market right now again let me just pause see if there are any thoughts questions all right um keep moving all right so one of the biggest question that i get and what i've seen you come across the headlines even in the news is inflation transitory or is it lasting and and their opinions on both sides and what we what the fed believes is that it's transitory it will go away you want the inflation to go slightly above 2% um because over time as economy gets better and it booms it's going to eventually return back to 2% if we doesn't go up then um you're going to end up with um less than 2% inflation which is not good so so their view is it's transitory there was virus impacted the service category which resulted in price declines during as the demand collapsed during pandemic and then there is this um imbalance in supply and demand now which is creating these shortages and increase in prices but all of it's going to go away in next uh 4 to 6 months as as it flushes out um the effect of pandemic and then as i mentioned earlier the the technology inventiveness and the kathy would point of view is um technology is going to improve productivity which is going to create strong deflationary forces and is essentially going to make inflation transitory okay the argument on the other side is um 
which what, what I call is more of an alarming indicator. I think one, the magnitude of stimulus um, that we have put out there has overheated the markets, resulting in asset price uh, inflation. Um, when you over, because we overheated the market with 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 all the money printing, as you can see, all of the money has sort of gone into Dow and S and P. As you can see, they're all time high. Dow was all time high yesterday. S and P is all time high today, right? There's double digit growth in home prices, about nineteen percent, right? If people are so concerned about pandemic and the, we're we're still in a recovery mode, why is everyone um, paying twenty percent more for a home and and, and why is there such a severe uh, shortage of homes? Uh, so so that's that's that, right? And then there is $3.5 trillion, which is about 16% of GDP that's sitting in dry powder. And by dry powder, I mean sitting on sidelines and liquid sort of cash or cash equivalent assets that's ready to be deployed, right? This is looking for home, trying to get, waiting to see how things normalize before that capital is deployed. Now, once that capital is deployed, it's going to try to look for assets and there's going to be competition, which is going to further drive the value of these assets high, which in my opinion and my view is risky because it even creates a bigger risk of a bigger bubble here, right? Uh, and, and like I mentioned on the previous slide, there's unusually tight labor market, which is indicating um, these some structural issues that exist. So now sort of thinking about sort of all the, the, the stock market sort of being a bubble, real estate being so up 20% and there's all this money sitting on the sideline. I feel that the transitory nature is gonna be not transitory short-term, but transitory more mid-term before it actually comes back to normal. So, so, so those are the, the alarming indicators that that I believe in. And the reason I, I believe those are alarming indicators is because um, there's some assumptions the Fed is making, which may not hold true. And I spent a lot of time thinking about why people, uh, why Jerome Powell and Fed's not sort of thinking the way I am thinking about this, what is the difference? And, and I've come up with a few things. One, their forward guidance assumes a very linear world, right? Where Everything happens linearly. The taper linearly. The, the the taper down is linear. So my point of view is, it's not. We're not in a train. We're in a bit of a roller coaster because this is, as I've shown from the, the numbers earlier, the world we're sort of in is we haven't seen this um, before. So it's not going to be linear. Um, there will be surprises. Second, what I've noticed is they're playing from the old playbook. They're using the learnings from the, the great sort of the 2000, uh, the financial crisis of 2009 and 10 to, to understand how they should adjust. And what they did there was, was slow and gradual tapering. Um, but I feel that's the wrong prescription here because we're in a very different times. Uh, this recession that we saw from pandemic was pandemic enforced and not sort of the, the true economic cycle-based recession. And, and the third thing where I think that playbook's not going to work is because it's, um, if, you, if you look at the commodities in 2013, when they started tapering, the commodities were down. Um, 
not up now. Commodities just within a year are already up 50 to 100 percent. Like I mentioned, the 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 crude oil is up um, 85. Natural gas is at five dollars, which is uh, at at one point I think it touched six dollars and thirty cents, which is absolutely ridiculous because it's directly uh, correlated to price of electricity and the price of it, and it's it, it's it's going to sort of have impact, right? And again, we can we can see it in other commodities. Plus, one thing I haven't listed here, but sort of I'm thinking that's also playing in as a hedge, is the the money that's going in. Um, alternate assets such as cryptocurrency. And, and, and those are sort of also serving as sort of an inflation hedge, which uh, wasn't that big of a deal in 2013, right? And, and when sort of, as, as I think about it, right, they're, they're, when the Fed tries to think about how and when they should start tapering, for them, they're always looking at the CPIs and then unemployment number. But I feel that's just using the, the consumer price index and unemployment and Today's time is probably not the right yardstick for this because we're not factoring in the fact that there is so much uh, $3.6 trillion sitting on the sidelines. We're not factoring in how there is a bubble in the stock market and how real estate prices have gone up so much. And, and the, the reason why I'm calling the stock market is a bubble is because I spent some time, and again, it's not on this slide, but I'll just say I would have spent is I've spent some time looking at the, the dot-com bubble, right? When, when During the dot-com bubble, the price per earning ratios was averaging around 40X. And I look at the price per earning ratio now, and it's back to 40, it's actually higher than 40, it's actually 42, 43X for S&P. So, um, so it's, it's, it's sort of, it resembles a little bit of that and shows those numbers. Uh, so, so that's what makes me think about it in bubble terms. So then what it did was, as part of sort of my research, I went back and looked at the inflation of uh, 1970s. I looked at the, the early 80s when I was born and interest rate was at 15%. But I also looked at the, the Japanese asset bubble. I don't know how many people here know about what happened in Japan in 1985, but the more I started reading up and learning about the Japanese asset bubble, the more I started to see the similarities between what we are going through here and the, what Japanese went through in 1985. To give you that story quickly, uh, what happened in 1985 was US entered into in this trade agreement with its partners and said, we want to devalue dollar against their currencies because um, we want to improve our exports. And um, all the partners agreed to it uh, because U.S. was their biggest sort of buyer. Um, so and what, what that did was Japan was growing exponentially before that. And when Japan agreed to um, the terms and, and then partnership with U.S., uh, what they said was they had to do was they, they said they need to introduce um, basically um, a new fiscal or monetary policy to address the slowdown that's going to happen um, because the dollar is, um, is going to go through the devalue, devaluation against their currency. So what they did was they introduced a massive fiscal and monetary stimulus. And their idea was with that massive fiscal and monetary stimulus, they can keep the growth at the rate at which it's growing without dipping 
and it will counter the effect of devaluation of the donor against Japanese yen. So when they did that, they ended up overheating the market. So, so where did all the money go when, um, when, when, when Japan made these new massive fiscal and monetary uh, policies and, and, ease, uh, and created these stimulus? Um, it went into actually the Japanese equity markets. It went into real estate, resulting in massive inflation in equity and real estate prices. And here's how crazy the numbers were. Japanese stock market was worth $4 trillion in 1990 and made up 44% of the total global market, whereas today it's only 6.7%. The total value of all of land in Japan was $20 trillion in 1991. But if we added up all the value of the land in US in the same year, it was only $4 trillion. Okay, so as the stock market in Japan started sort of going up, Here's what happened, and it actually further enforced it. A lot of retail investors got into the action too. They said, hey, the market's going up vertically. We need to get in. So the percentage of trading volume from retail investors that made up um, the total trading was up to one third. So, um, so as I sort of saw this, right, and as I triangulated it with what we are going through, with our fiscal and monetary stimulus for the COVID, and then um, then the real estate prices, then the prices and the asset prices in the stock market and the meme stocks and uh, retail investors and the Robinhood um, traders jumping into the market. I started sort of drawing some of these similarities here, right? And, and here are the numbers from, from um, what we have seen if we draw the similarities. Massive influx of retail investors, uh, daily inflow of 30 billion in retail money going into stock market, right? According to Charles Schwab's survey, uh, 15%, um, the 20, um, 15% of 2020 of current retail investors begin, 15% of total investors begin investing, uh, retail investors begin investing in 2020. So 15% came in 2020, right? Asset prices are high, as I said, S&P and Dow is all-time high, double-digit growth in home prices. And in what they're calling these retail investors is generation investors. And um, when we did the survey here, they, they found out that opti- the generation investors are way more optimistic about the stock market. Um, when we, uh, they asked them if they think about the stock market will increase in value in 2021, 57% said it will increase, but pre-2020 was 44%. Plan to invest more in stock market, 43% for generation investor, but pre-2020, pre-COVID, it was 20%. And plan to spend more time managing their portfolio, 30%, whereas it was 19% before that, right? So a lot of retail money is also going in, which 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 kind of sort of reflects the surplus in money um, that... Um, that that the stimulus packages have created. Okay, there's another thing that's very that was very interesting that I noticed. Um, are you guys familiar with SPACs? And um, and I'll, I'll just quickly describe what SPAC is. SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company. It's essentially a blank check company that uh, goes public uh, with with an idea and goal to buy a private company and bring a private company that's not ready for public market 
into public market. So um, a hedge fund would go create a special purpose company, blank check company, raise the money, and then use the money to buy a private company. Uh, we have seen uh, a lot of that happen last year. Um, there is a retail, and uh, there is a. We've seen this with um, with SoFi, Open Doors, and so on. And there was a very similar concept in Japan during their bubble. It's called the token. So token was a way where Japanese companies that were publicly traded were able to invest and diversify across different things. So what ended up becoming with these token investments is every company that was even sort of the companies that were technology companies or in business to make printers ended up becoming and acting like hedge funds because they were um, and they were buying and investing in diverse um, assets not related to their core business. So in Japan from 1983 to 1987, um, the, the investment in um, tokens went up from 2 trillion Japanese yen to 30 trillion, right? That's 96.8% in just a matter of few years. Now we look at the SPAC investments in US, right? So the SPAC investments in 2018 were total at 1.8 trillion. In 2020, 83 billion, sorry, 1.8 billion, from 1.8 billion to 83 billion, okay? And then it just in 2019 it was 13 billion, but now it's 83 billion. So it's definitely strange, right? And as you can see from these charts, um, there's there's that similarity where we're getting um, we're underwriting a lot more risk here, um, and and it's representing and reflecting some of that, right? So um, how are we doing on time, uh, Anthony? Are we doing okay? We're doing great. All right. So. Um, what we've learned for, from the Japanese asset bubble, what we've learned is, um, here's what we have learned. When Japan saw that there was this bubble in the asset prices, they did what we are expecting our Fed to do, start increasing the interest rate. But when but it was a day late, right? When it comes to increasing the interest rate. So when Japan was only halfway through their interest rate increase, um, the bubble busted, it crushed the equity markets. And 30 years later, they still have not fully recovered. Okay. So as I think about it, right, and as I try to map it to the present day, um, I am thinking what will happen in February and March of 2022 as we start increasing and start tapering, right? They don't, I don't think there's going to stop. They're going to start tapering. And as they do this slowly, right, and slowly start increasing the interest rate, is it, will it be too slow and too late? And if it's too slow, too late, um, what would it do to equity markets? And, and how do we prepare ourselves for it? So if that happens, uh, we, can, we can better manage our um, capital allocation. So, um, so, so that's what sort of uh, that's what I sort of came up with here, right? So, what I said was, what what should be the investment principles for this inflation, given all that we just learned and studied here? 
So the principles that I've made is one is sort of influenced by Ray Dalio, um, Bridgewater Associates um, founder um, and chairman. Uh, he talks about cash being trash, cash is trash. But what I've also seen is not only cash is trash, but bonds are trash too. Because we're, it's, we're practically at a, uh, interest, we were at zero, right? Per, percent interest rates of bonds are trash too. And in, 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 in mostly contributed to printing of the money and ever growing our debt ceiling. I wanna stay away from cash and bonds. The second thing is um, I wanna invest in hyper growth companies, companies that are growing 40% or more. And the reason why I say 40% or more is because those companies will have the power to offset the inflation, even if the inflation is 20% or even if the correction brings the equity markets down by 20%. If you invest in companies that are growing 40% year over year, then you have a better chance of setting inflation. And those companies have the actually potential to be um, the, the leader in their space, right? As the, as the trends and uh, overarching themes uh, for where the world is going evolves. Right. The the third category is, and which sort of fits with with the theme of this group here, cash generative assets. So again, dollar today is worth more than dollar tomorrow. So if I can invest in cash generative assets, I know I have the asset, not cash. So assets can appreciate. Plus, they're producing money, and the money can go. Today, I'd rather take that money today and put it in a place where it would be hedged from inflation and and grow. And last but not least, non-correlated assets. So non-correlated assets essentially is the ability to diversify well across asset class, countries, and currencies. So, and again, sort of pulling it together, right? Um, by limiting my exposure to cash and bonds, right? By making sure I am long and hyper-growth companies that are growing at least 40% by having more cash-generative assets, like real estate and the non-correlated assets, I feel the portfolio would be um, better hedged for inflation if that inflation happens. And even if that inflation is transitory and doesn't happen, it still looks like a really good deal because you're in the hyper growth companies. You have some risk hedging with non-correlated assets, uh, which is alternative assets. And then, um, Cash generative assets, it's never a bad idea to be in cash generative assets. So what it did was then it said, I take these principles and turn it into a framework. And again, these are my allocations and you don't have to follow these allocations, uh, do what fits you. But um, here's how I'm thinking about it, right? To me, this is my new 60-40 um, from what, we understand from 60, 40, 60 equity, 40% and fixed income. To me in this new world order that we live in, um, I, I wanna be 30% allocated to cash generative assets. Cash generative assets is real estate, multifamily. Um, I wanna be in hyper growth companies. An example that I quoted here is Shopify. And, and the way I select this is um, I look at what is the overarching theme that the world is writing, okay? And for Shopify, I'll give you an example. The theme that's going to be consistent is going to hold true two years from now, five years from now, and even seven years from now, people are going to shop online. 
and they're going to continue to shop online. And online shopping is going to become sort of easier, more convenient. And it may even replace um, the, the brick and mortar to, to with an 80-20 sort of principle. So, and then when I say, okay, that's, I, I now I understand that e-commerce is going to be, is e-commerce is not going anywhere. If anything, it's growing. Who are the monopolies in e-commerce? And within the monopolies, which company has the higher potential to go up um, versus like you think about Shopify and Amazon, right? Shopify, I feel, has more room to go than, than Amazon. So, so that's how I sort of thought and think about Shopify. Commodities, right? Um, commodities, um, I, again, gold can be gold, gold can be copper. Um, the, um, there are companies out there, technology companies, putting um, billions of dollars in gold. I don't know if you saw the news. Um, uh, Palantir put, I think, 55. I don't, I don't want to quote, but I don't want to put a wrong number out there. But I know they put significant amount of cash in gold recently. Okay, these are the, the, the uh, Palantir is the consultant to US government. That's their biggest client. So uh, if anything, it's sort of what the signal is telling us is, they, they, they believe in gold more than they believe in dollar in terms of keeping um, where it's, it's best suited to keep their money. And then there are, there are other companies that have done it. The reason I've coded copper here is, and again, there is sort of this overarching theme, right? The overarching theme that I see is uh, electrification of the world. Uh, EVs, the electric vehicles like Tesla's and other companies jumping on the bandwagon. Um, the, the, the world's going to get electrified very quickly, right? Uh, there's going to be Tesla. There's going to be other companies that are going to create all electric cars. And these electric cars need copper. They need copper. They need rare earth metals. So as the cars get electrified, the copper is going to become a new oil. So, so investing in a commodity like this would be would be good, right? And again, I'm not saying invest in copper. I'm just giving you a logical way of arriving at how you should make selections. And then currencies, right? So to think about the ones that are not correlated to US, it's the Aussie yen pair um, is how I'm thinking about it. Energy, right? There's already, um, energy is already going up as we see with oil prices, with natural gas prices. Um, and energy is also a good hedge against uh, inflation because that's sort of a better place to keep your cash and and last but not least the non-correlated assets in my mind non-correlated asset is bitcoin and ethereum and uh, definance right now to me uh, as inflation becomes more real uh, more and more people are going to start looking at bitcoin as the new gold and i can tell that's already happening because um, a lot of institutional investors and pension funds and endowments are moving um, chunk of their sort of portfolio into Bitcoin. So, and again, it goes back to the point I made earlier. Part of it is the expectation. Your expectations become self-fulfilling prophecies. So as more and more institutional investors and the endowments and people that actually control the money supplies, the, the more they start seeing it as the gold alternate, the more this is going to go up, right? So that's, I, I, I see see that. I like Ethereum because of 
the application it has in decentralized finance. And again, decentralized finance is another overarching theme. I see that the world will ride over next 10 years. So anything uh, that's supporting the decentralized finance theme with, um, would, be, would, be, would be a good and non-correlated um, capital allocation in my mind. That's um, that's that's my take at this. Let me let me pause. See if any thoughts and reaction. Anybody from the audience have anything? Go ahead, Ari. If you have one more uh, slide, we'll get into. Some I have one more slide. I have one more slide, and then we get into. Um, so I, this is sort of just. Um, by the way, I have a book. That are, that's coming soon. I started working on it last year, like I said. Um, and what I'm writing here is, and again, I haven't sort of created a website for it yet, but it's coming together. Um, the book is called Shifting World Order and New Rules for Operating in It. And essentially what we do is we look at, in this book is look at the forces that are shaping this new world order, how things are changing. And, and what I do in the book is I start with drawing parallels to the last change in world order, how the world went from essentially from a British empire to US empire. What are the factors that contributed to that transition? Then what are the economic forces that that we can, um, that are driving that new shift today? And then what are the techno uh, technical forces and technological forces that are playing into changing the world um, that we live in? And as they come together, what is the paradigm shift? What is the new operating model that we need to follow to, to build on it, right? The paradigm shift is going to shift the values as we can see um, location, right? Where do we live? Where do we work? That should change. There are new rules of finance, right? There is value investors and value investing definition that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger has. Um, but the value investing today and what the definition of value investing today should be is very different than what their view of value investing is. Because if you stick with the older view of value investing, um, Philip Morris may seem like a really good value investing, but given the growth and the what's happening in technology, there are other ways to measure what should be value investing. And again, I'm just using that as an example to show that sort of the, the terminologies and definitions of finance is going to evolve and how we need to adjust our investment uh, mindset with it. And again, education and career is also something that will evolve. So it sort of gives you what's changing, how we anticipate the change, and then how we need to adjust ourselves to match the paradigm shift. It's coming. I'll, I'll let the group know when the book is ready and we'll send the link out, but I just wanted to put that out there that this is coming. Definitely let us know and happy to promote it. And um, that was a fantastic presentation, Ari. I really appreciated it. Uh, if we have any questions for Ari from the audience, feel free to just unmute yourself and ask a question. If not, I have a few questions myself. Um, so if we, if, does anybody have any questions or? All right. Um, sure, I'll ask a question. So um, you're talking about the 
different, you know, place, you know, the, the results of places where you would invest. Um, what is your view on some of those investments uh, with respect to investing in the form of debt versus equity? Okay, that's that's actually a fantastic question. Um, so, it, it when it comes to and again, I'll I'll give you sort of again if I have more sort of clarity to what type of debt, what kind of debt. Um, I'll I'll give you an example with two different kinds of debt. One that is sort of where you have a fixed traditional debt structure. You're investing in in a debt either in a corporate debt, and and what that will do is that will give you sort of fixed interest and. And again, it's it's a fine way to 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 hedge uh, against the, the the depreciation as long as the interest rate you're getting on the debt is better than what the inflation number is going to look. My worry there is inflation numbers may get completely out of control uh, given all of the numbers that we saw. That's that's one kind of debt. Now the second kind of debt is. Uh, and again, depends on sort of the level of sophistication and, and type of investments is on convertible debt. Uh, what Tesla did in 2014 was they made available convertible debt, convertible note investment to institutional investors. Now, now that's risk adjusted return on that convertible note in Tesla was, or whoever made those investments. Um, I believe Social Capital was one of the companies that did was was an amazing call, right? Because um, there were um, the, the risk return profile was good because it's a convertible debt, and then they had the option to convert it to equity, which I believe they did and ended up working out really well. So, to give you a short answer to your question, one, it depends on the type of debt, and also it depends on the depends on your view of where you think how bad the inflation is going to be against the interest rate you're getting on the debt. And it would seem that um, the, within the first type of debt, there's also like variable interest rate. Is that kind of in the middle in your view? Yeah, the yeah, variable would probably be in the middle. Yeah, but again, there's variables may have some interesting options there too, uh, but it depends on the level of sophistication an investor has and and, and their, their outlook on it. My personal point of view, given what's available um, in terms of capital allocation, I feel, uh, and again, personal opinion, I feel I am better off allocating not to debt, but to um, but to actual sort of taking an equity stake in a cash generating asset, right? Because um, look, if inflation happens and it seems like it is happening, right? Uh, the value of dollar today is more than the value of dollar tomorrow. And I'd rather borrow as much as I can. I want to be on the other side where I want to borrow as much as I can now and put it in the cash generative assets. That's why I love um, what Anthony and the team is doing, right? I love um, put it in sort of assets, put it in hyper growth companies and, and hyper growth companies that meet the 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 trend that the world is moving towards and if those investments work out they will far do far better than again doing in debt and again like i said it depends on the risk appetite and your know-how of the subject but that's how i would allocate 
I want to be on the other side of it, Jen. I want to borrow. That's a great question. Um, I have a few questions, but I'm just going to, since we're coming up on seven o'clock here, I'm going to keep it pretty strict to that um, as we're talking about allocations. So what, how much cash should we have, Ari? How, because we obviously need to have cash to live and, you know, and just a standard checking account. Um, and obviously, a, a, you know, how much reserve should we have? Um, is it 5% of our total allocation? To, I, I, I didn't see it on your list. So are you just saying don't yeah. really? So I was, I was talking purely from the investment standpoint. I was giving the, the, think of it as a pie chart for your investment portfolio, not your emergency funds. And um, we, we, yes, uh, when I say cash is trash, it is trash, but you still need it to live and survive. But uh, so I would still keep and maintain the cash that's needed for day-to-day cash that whatever the rule of thumb is that Susie Orman and others have in terms of how much you should have in emergency and have that. It's sort of what's, after you're set with emergency, after you're set with the cash you need for your day-to-day, it's the investment capital that's left and that you shouldn't have in cash. And if you're sitting on a lot of cash, it's it's a scary place to be because you, there's, there, there's, there's the better places and better home for your money than, than, than have them in cash. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, as we wind down the program tonight, does anybody have some remaining thoughts? Questions, comments. You know, before before we go, actually, I have a couple of questions. I think this might be on some people's minds. It's definitely on mine. Uh, we only talked about the budget deficit, basically from you know, obviously, you had a historical chart that spanned the decades and decades before. Um, we didn't talk really about what's going on now in in Congress in terms of 2021, 2022, moving forward. You know, Congress is looking to pass another $3.5 trillion of spending that's obviously going to come from somewhere um, and likely add to the deficit as well. So any without getting you know into the politics of it, any opinions on that in terms of the inflation standpoint? And um, I'm, I'm really curious to hear where you think we're going to be back to 2% if we're ever going to be you know, reverting back to the mean. Like what, what, and what, what time period do you think that's going to be? Um, those are, those are my two questions. I had to, have to in ask. My mind, no, no, they're, they're, they're great, great questions. In my mind, this is sort of just out of control, right? One, and sort of, there is a talk about, let's just, because we keep increasing our debt ceiling, it's arbitrary anyways, let's just get rid of it. And let's go unlimited with how much we can have that. And, and the reason why we have been able to do so is because US is the reserve currency of the world, right? Um, we have the power to do, um, to do no other country can, can do what we can do because we are the reserve currency of the world. Oil is traded in dollars, which essentially is directly correlated to how the world economy is doing, right? So so we have that working in our favor and that has allowed us to play and come this far, right? But um, I worry we're hitting the point of no return where there are other emerging powers such as China and, and where they're, they're going to look at us and they're going to say, why do we have to 
uh, they look at Saudi Arabia, right? Uh, the OPEC countries and say, Saudi Arabia, why do we have to pay for oil based on what um, the decision of the Fed is in US, right? What we pay you for oil shouldn't depend on how US is making their decisions, right? And US and Fed is acting in their own interest, right? Acting in the country's interest. And, and there was another thing that has happened that I feel is um, before, back in the day, fiscal and monetary policy both operated independently. Now it's all intertwined, right? The treasury and the Fed is one and the same. They're sort of all, there's the, the level of independence is gone, right? So if China sort of stands up tomorrow and say, hey, you know, enough is enough. We're sort of hitting our ceiling too. Hey, and, and by the way, they've already started doing some of it too. They've already started buying equity stakes in oil companies in Saudi Arabia where they have equity stake in those companies. And Saudi Arabia is investing in oil refineries in China. Okay, now because Saudi Arabia is investing in oil refineries in China, um, they have a um, stake in oil companies there. They're also in talks of... Um, trading in, in the Chinese one. And uh, we had this policy when we just, we went to OPEC and we said, let's trade oil for dollars. We said, um, uh, there's, I, I'm forgetting what the, it was barrels, bombs, and um, something, something else. Where essentially we were saying, trade oil in dollars and the dollars you get for from selling oil, use those dollars to buy bombs. And in exchange, we will provide you the, the bombs and the safety and security, right? So, but what, what China's doing is, China's looking at it and saying, hey, um, Saudi Arabia and Middle East in general, look, we're buying oil from you. Let's just trade in one. And I think they've already started doing some of it in one. Uh, let's just start buying in one. And if we start buying in one, um, all the one you're gonna get from selling us, we can use that in infrastructure spend because we are very good at building infrastructures. Look at the infrastructures we have built and look at your country, um, look at Libya, look at Iraq. All of them need new infrastructure and who's best suited to build those infrastructure and who is best suited to do it cheap, China, right? So, so there is that, that dynamic at play, which scares me because it's sort of, you can only go so long when the world order can shift, right? And it goes back to the British Empire and as their world order shift. But um, coming, coming back to your point, right? I think we're hitting a point of no return. And when you hit a point of no return, there are a couple of ways to address it, right? We're given how much our debt is. I don't know if we'll ever pay it back, right? So what do we do? We either monetize our debt or we allow the inflation to happen. And that was the point I made earlier. If we monetizing that doesn't really seem like sort of viable option, right? And then sort of as, as we, and it may be viable, but it's so much easier to let the inflation run because when the inflation runs, the nominal GDP looks much bigger than what your debt is. So essentially reducing the value of the, the, the debt you have because GDP to debt ratio would change because the nominal GDP would go up because now uh, the bread is, instead of paying $5, you're paying $500 for the bread, right? And, and that's what we have seen in some other countries happen. Again, I'm, I'm sure given the US's control over um, 
rest of the world, it's never going to be become Zimbabwe. But what I'm saying is, and what I'm seeing is, inflation is very, very real. It's happening. It's going to be much worse than what um, Fed is saying it's going to be. And in some ways, it may work out for them to have that inflation. Um, but it may not work out for an average Joe who is putting their money and the dollars and saving and saving for retirement while they keep printing more money. Great points. Well, Ari, thank you so much for um, coming on tonight. I, I know it's late and really appreciate everybody for coming on this webinar, uh, important topic every, every time you turn on the news, uh, someone's talking about it. So uh, really excited to hear from Ari, you know, from a bird's eye perspective, um, all different points of view. So we can kind of take it in and look to, you know, how we're going to reallocate, you know, our future, you know, investment criteria. So uh, I'm going to wrap it up now. Ari, thank you so much again. I will be posting this on YouTube for those of you who want to watch it again or forward it to a friend. I'll probably do that within the next couple of days. And I will also likely, if it's okay with you, Ari, make a podcast out of it as well. Um, Absolutely. Just, just more people will listen just to kind of hear your train of thought, which I love. And um, again, really appreciate you and, and everybody coming on tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. It was awesome.